0: Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, the political reporter Walter Shapiro visits the studio to tell us about his new book about his great uncle, Hustling Hitler. Former LA Times book critic David Ulan is here to talk to us about his novel, Ear to the Ground, which he co-wrote with Paul Colesby. We'll find out if Paul Colesby exists. I think we should go to the show. Hey. Walter Shapiro is in the studio. He's a political journalist. He's written for all kinds of publications you have heard of, which are too numerous to mention. He's got a new book out. It's called Hustling Hitler. Walter, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour.
1: Oh, it's, it's great fun. So, Walter, this book, Hustling Hitler, first of all, great title. The rest of it is also, I rather like, The Jewish Vaudevillian Who Fooled the Fuhrer. And that Jewish Vaudevillian
0: Who Fooled the Fuhrer was actually your uncle Freeman Bernstein. My my, my great great uncle,
1: uncle. born in Troy in 1873.
0: So your American-born great uncle Freeman Bernstein hustled Hitler, which you do write about in the book, To Great Effect?, Tell us a little bit about your uncle, who you generously describe as a con man.
1: I think a a grifter, I think, is a phrase he might have preferred. He also wanted to be known as an honest man if only there were enough money. But he started out as a vaudeville booking agent, married a showgirl, was briefly a silent movie producer, which I'd love to get back to, until the insurance fire. Then there was a moment of how do we say it, racetrack fixing. Uh, he was banned from racetracks in three different countries. Do you know how hard you have to work to be banned from a racetrack in Tijuana? Uh, <laughs> uh, and then there was the Irish festival he organized under the name of Roger O'Rion in Boston in 1929. And oddly enough, Mr. O'Rion disappeared with the gate receipts. And all this led him to run off to the Orient, where he crowned himself as the Jade King of China. It was one of these investiture ceremonies, a little like King Arthur and the Sword and the Stone. And as Mae West um, explains in her autobiography, he was very adept at smuggling jewels in from the Orient past the customs. He had a little small dog, a little white terrier who was fed a mineral-rich diet a couple of hours out from port (laughs) and going through customs. There would be this distinguished portly gentleman of late middle age and this little white ball of fluff. It worked every time. And all of this led up to the big scam of his life, the hustle of Hitler, where he actually sold the Nazis 200 tons of impossible-to-get-Canadian nickel And Canadian nickel is really useful for armor plating battleships and lining the insides of guns, particularly if you intend to invade Poland and France. But the Nazis ended up, oddly enough, getting very hard to get Canadian tin cans, very hard to get Canadian rusted railroad tracks, and very hard to get discarded um, auto bodies. And as Freeman Bernstein said later, if you melted it down, there must be some nickel in there somewhere. <laughs> now, Walter, cons by their nature are evanescent.
0: And yet you walk the reader through this, this swindle that your uncle pulled. In some detail, how were you able to recreate what happened?
1: Well, first of all, I grew up hearing the stories about my great-uncle Freeman from my father, who was a Connecticut city planner, going to zoning board hearings in the evening. In other words, this was not a rich, flamboyant life that I was born into, or at least it didn't seem to my teenage self. So when my father would tell these stories of his uncle Freeman, of his mother's brother, it made no sense to me. It was like him telling me, you know, son, you're a direct descendant of Sitting Bull. And only after my father died did I realize that, and partially this is due to the digitization of everything being available, digitized and also character recognition software, that I found 2,500 newspaper clips about my great-uncle Freeman Bernstein. And much more importantly, a con man tends to develop a interesting history of paper trails with government agencies. Mm. And the wonderful thing about the city of New York, they throw nothing out. So I reconstructed the Hitler deal, as well as many of his other cons, from 1,500 pages of documents from the New York City archives, including every single bit of the DA's files from the case against him. And the state of California also, because there were two extradition fights, also sent me voluminous detail over the extradition fights.
2: It makes sense to me that you could go through the Troy Daily News and find this is newspapers like m- that.
1: I found in the uh, Troy times, the family moved to Troy. Um, my great-grandfather emigrated in 1868 and was a Jewish peddler in Troy. And what I discovered— is I even found Freeman Bernstein's first arrest. He must have been 14 years old in about 1887. And there was an island in the middle of the Hudson River. Troy is on one side, Albany is on the other. And on an island where people would go bathing in this rather fetid water, a gentleman by the name of John O'Sullivan went into the water with a ten dollar bill in his pants that he left on the beach when he returned oddly enough the ten dollars was missing but my great uncle was around so my great uncle was hauled into court in troy and about to be convicted of theft at age 14, until somebody pointed out that part of the island is under the jurisdiction of Albany, not Troy. So at an early age, he learned that you can get away with anything on a technicality. But basically, stories like this, or the tenement fires the family endured in the 1880s, would only be found through character recognition software, because to have done this even 10 years ago, I would have had to sit in the Rensselaer County, New York Historical Society with microfilm going page by page mm-hmm. over 10 years of agate type looking for a mention of the name Freeman Bernstein.
2: But how did you then find his his uh, adventure as a part time Irishman?
1: Well, one of the things, and this is the other thing that makes the book live, is that Syme Silverman, the first editor of Variety, when Variety was New York-based and was mostly about vaudeville, fell in love with my great-uncle as a Broadway character. He was Runyon-esque while Damon Runyon was still learning how to drink as a cub reporter in Denver. And every couple of weeks, Syme Silverman would run Freeman. Bernstein's monologues, where he would talk about the difficulty of doing business. And one of my favorites began, Freeman Bernstein was rubbing lemon over last year's Panama hat. Ain't it a shame, he said, when a man of my stature has to get by on last year's bonnet. And then he would go... (laughs) And then there were stories, he was notorious for not paying his bills. So there were stories about him having to sneak into the office at 6 o'clock in the morning because the mail arrived at 7, and if he didn't beat the mail, one of his creditors would go through the mail looking for a check. But they talked about the Irish Festival in Boston. It was a wonderful success. Mr. Orion was just a wonderful Irishmen. Uh, the Blarney stone was dug up from a, I think, farm by the name of someone named Blarney outside of Boston. But the Irish stew from Dinty Moores was authentic. Actually, the placemats from Dinty Moores were authentic. My great uncle had about a thousand of them stolen, and he had someone in the back room making up the Irish stew. But ultimately, the Boston papers were all over this, and they actually referred to him when after he was identified as looking suspiciously like Roger Orion, the headlines all (laughs) talked about Mr. Orionstein.
0: (laughs) Walter, what was the tone of the stories your father told you about your great uncle? This is the first of a two-part question.
1: Okay, so we will take this. I normally do politics, so and, I'm always nervous about two parts. And questions. I'll, give, I'll
0: give you the second part right now. And the second part is how did your views of your great uncle shift over the course of researching the book, Hustling Hitler?
1: Ah, oh. oh, let me take the first part first. My father was not a great storyteller. So his stories about his great uncle Freeman, in addition to being implausible, I mean, we're in, we're suburban, a Jewish family in suburban Connecticut. What do you mean? I had a relative who was friends with so- Sophie Tucker and married a show girl. It made no sense. But there was a wistfulness in my father's voice mm. as he told these stories, almost living like that was the family road not taken, and that it was almost a generation removed from that. He and the rest of the family had chosen respectability. But to some extent, the first generation in America, Freeman Bernstein, had a lot more fun living it. As far as my mood towards him, there were many aspects of him. He was really smart. He was funny. There was a heart of gold quality to him. He had a fifth-grade education, but yeah, there were times when, if there was a vaudeville troupe in Scranton, and there was money for only one train ticket out, it wasn't like they had a lottery to figure out who got the train ticket. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: in it was, fact, it he that abandoned. Was Irishman got it?
1: <laughs> yeah. In fact, yes, Roger O'Reilly. In fact, he abandoned. <laughs> A, a vaudeville troupe in the Dominican Republic, which was a little trickier, since it was hard for them to uh, hitchhike home. And the U.S. consul in Santo Domingo wired to the FBI in New York: "Stop that boat! Stop Freeman Bernstein." Quote: "Don't believe any suave story he may tell you. He can convince you black is white." Signed: Moran of the State Department.
2: Mm.
0: My experience reading the book was, oh, this guy's very charming. Let's see what adventure he's going to get into next. And by the end, I thought, my God, he should have spent 30 years in prison.
1: He was a scoundrel. He was, but he also wrote right before the nickel scandal, when he was really down on his luck, he wrote a movie treatment and it was typed on the back, a borrowed letterhead from Acme Wine and Liquor Importers on West 57th Street in Manhattan.
2: When you say borrowed. Well, I think...
1: (laughs) Well, coincidentally, it came into his possession. Yes, (laughs) uh, they. He may have found it in a dumpster or, (laughs) or the 1935 version thereof. But the movie treatment, which is about someone suspiciously like him, Except this guy, down on his luck, a vaudeville show business agent with no clients, puts together a racing coup and collects a lot of money at 50 to 1. Then, as part of this, he meets a merry widow of a steel baron from Buffalo, who he marries immediately, and suddenly he's ordering suits and pajamas from Sulka, but he's also paying back every single one of his friends. He is helping any friend down on his luck, and then he does something that you and I would do if we came into a windfall. He buys a circus, (laughs) he buys a fight club, and he buys the hotel in which he's been living on the cuff. But again, the thing about him is he wanted to be an honest man, and if he was born into the wasp aristocracy and was a legacy member of the Union League Club, he would have been. But in his situation, he did what he had to, or so he felt.
2: So he, he would not have been Donald Trump if he had given the chance.
1: No. I mean, actually, this book, since I am a columnist for Roll Call, covering the campaign, this book is my refuge from the age of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no meanness to Freeman Bernstein. He was a showman. But there was the hatred that um, Trump expresses would not fit with Freeman Bernstein at all. Also, even though my great-uncle Freeman did do a Yiddish pamphlet in 1928 to help elect Herbert Hoover, uh, it was about the two uh, Moses, the great great Moses, the original one and the American one. And you can tell the American one because he was the one without the beard. But... (laughs) Despite that, my great-uncle was not very political.
2: Mm. You talk about the screenplay, the treatment, as giving you a lot of insight into your great-uncle. Do you think that's because it was wish-fulfillment on his part? Do you think it's because it's his idealized version of what might happen? Or
1: or there's also the chance, because he is someone I lived with for four years in researching mm-hmm. this book, I wanted to have the heart of gold. Mm -hmm. And I will admit, I have to tell you the story that I got the film treatment is amazing in itself and involves Emerson College. Where we're broadcasting from. Where we're broadcasting from. For every interview, I have this very, very specific connection. That
2: is very kind of you.
1: Back in the early days of vaudeville, during vaudeville, Variety, among other places, maintained a script registry service. Mm-hmm. and that basically meant that if you had a vaudeville skit that ended with the patient hitting the doctor over the head with a mallet you would write it down and send it to variety they would time stamp it and put it in a filing cabinet and if five years from later you heard that somebody was in buffalo was doing the same act You would retrieve it from Variety, alert Variety, and they would run an article about we have now proven that so-and-so in Buffalo is stealing an act.
2: Mm.
1: By 1935, this had obviously atrophied from the death of vaudeville, the rise of the Writers Guild, not Mm -hmm. to mention film. But Freeman Bernstein, having finished this film treatment, didn't know where to send it. So he sent it to Variety's New York offices. And when Variety moved its main headquarters to L.A., the whole file cabinet in which these scripts were kept moved to L.A. Go forward to about 2011 or 2012, Variety is downsizing to smaller quarters. And I think it was the Motion Picture Academy, in conjunction with Emerson College, agreed to buy anything Variety had if Emerson would catalog it. And that is how I found, in 2013, online, Mm. Freeman Bernstein's script, which had sat in a file cabinet in Variety's L.A. office, and New York office, unread by anyone for over 75 years. Mm. And the fact that this wasn't pulped, that this wasn't thrown out, that it was not sitting in a garbage dump since 1942, is one of the most amazing things that happened to me in writing this book.
0: We love literary archaeology stories. The book is Hustling Hitler. Walter Shapiro, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour.
1: It's been great fun.
0: This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. He's our colleague. He's our friend. He is the former longtime book editor and book critic of the Los Angeles Times. David Ulan is in the studio.
3: Welcome to the show. Thank you, Seth. Good to be here.
2: It was a long time, wasn't it? How how long were you at the
3: Times? I was there for 10 years. It was Uh a long time. Yeah. Five years as editor, five years as critic.
2: And an interesting time in the history of the American newspaper.
3: That 10-year period, I, I came in sort of right on the cusp of the collapse and then sort of watched... Can yeah, we up. say
0: Can we say you presided over the death?
3: I think you could say maybe I'm the cause. <laughs>
2: cause well, that cause does I, explain it.
0: Because I wasn't going to go to the personal place, but since you did, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible coincidence. Somebody has to take responsibility for this. <laughs> it's a dreadful, dreadful situation. Anyway, we won't make jokes about the LA Times or at their expense. For the did next we, thirty
2: seconds. And we didn't. That was a expense. No, we expense. didn't. We did that. Yeah, that was at my expense. We so. did
0: that with yeah. a great deal of dignity, I think. <laughs> the reason that you're in the studio today, other than the fact that we like you and having you around, is you have co-written a novel with Paul Colesby called Ear to the Ground, which we're gonna talk about in just a moment, but I have
3: a question. Does Paul Colesby really exist? He exists in his own mind. Yeah. <laughs> no, he exists. <laughs> Are you sure he is a he is a walking, breathing, talking human being? Is this not Andy Kaufman and Bob Zemuda? No, for me it would be more like Charlie Kaufman and uh, <laughs> and and whatever his brother's oh, name is in an adaptation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you and Paul wrote Ear to the Ground, and you didn't write it last year or the year before or the year before that. You wrote it in nineteen.
3: We wrote it in nineteen ninety five and nineteen ninety six. We started in spring of, of 95 and finished it up in uh, February of 96. And
0: how did it come into being? How was it born?
3: Well, Paul and I were, we're still friends. Um, Paul and I were friends in college. And in the early mid-90s, I was an editor at the Late Lamented Los Angeles Reader, which was a, a wonderful alt-weekly where I learned everything I needed to know about journalism. And Paul was doing some writing for us, most notably a piece on Tommy Lasorda, where he was escorted off the field at Dodger Stadium by security, I think, after insulting Tommy Lasorda on the field. And we, the wait, reader... Wait, wait, Paul was? Paul was, yes. <laughs> Not Tommy Lasorda, <laughs> Paul was. So uh, the reader was on its last legs. It was always a kind of shoestring situation, and it was about to go out of business. And so in the spirit of uh, of Jim Bellows and the old New York Herald Tribune, Paul and I pitched uh, our friend who was the managing editor, a guy named Eric Himmelsbach on the idea of doing a weekly serial novel in real time. Originally, the idea was to do it a chapter a week for a year. And it turned out that we had kind of resolved the story in about nine months, and Eric went for it. So from May of 95 through February of 96, we wrote a chapter a week for 38 weeks, and that was the story. Um, that is basically the the book as it is now published.
2: So, And, and was the idea based on Dickens or on Divine Rights Trip?
3: The first inspiration really was Armistead Maupin. Dickens was there and Tom Wolfe in the background because he had done Bonfire as a serial originally for Rolling Stone. But, you know, we were tight for space. So we had to, Mm -hmm. you know, our chapters were 900 words long. Dickens couldn't couldn't even write the prelude to a chapter in 900 words. (laughs) But Maupin, because he'd been writing tales for a daily newspaper. Uh, And we should say, specifically Armistead Maupin wrote. —wrote Tales of the City, which he wrote as a serial for, for the San Francisco Chronicle until—I late. I mean, for I think the first four books were actually mm-hmm. as a daily serial, which is completely nuts— but there was something really great about that idea of of that short space. And also the, for me at least, the interaction of the fictional characters in the actual life of the city that was, you know, happening outside. There was a kind of attempted verisimilitude in terms of having the characters go through the same cityscape that the readers were going
0: through. Now, this book is so old it was written on floppy disks.
3: It was written on floppy disks, it's, yeah.
0: And it's been moldering. <laughs> and, and
3: faxed. We faxed we faxed installments <laughs> to each other. And, and
0: it's been moldering <laughs> at the bottom of a file cabinet for Two decades. How A did, virtual file cabinet. A virtual file cabinet. How did The Embers come to be blown to life?
3: Well, I had always had this sort of always, since we finished it, I had had a kind of backroom fantasy about, you know, getting it out between two covers. The Reader folded in um, August of 96 before, really before, I and mean, there was no internet, there was no Reader website. So there's no digital trail. There's no, nothing was preserved and I'd always kind of had this idea that maybe we would do something with it. But life went on and we all did our own thing and, and went off in various ways. And then a couple of years ago, Paul called me and said, the key question was, he said, do you still have the digital files? Mm. And I did. So he said, have you read them? And I said, no, but I always have had this thought maybe we should do something. And he said, well, send them to me and let's read them. So I sent them to him and we read them and we had no idea what it was. We remembered writing it. We had no idea whether it was any good or not.
0: Describe the experience of rereading it.
3: <laughs> it was really weird for two reasons. One I'm is I'm having an anxiety attack
0: just thinking about rereading something, <laughs> something that you wrote 20, or, 20, years, 20 years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, it was not, even when we were writing it, it was sort of a side gig, right? We were having fun with it. It wasn't what we were mainly doing. We were getting together. It was also, we wrote it at a low grade state of panic because we had a sort of operating outline of what we wanted the story to do. But we also wanted to be responsive to the times, and we just weren't that organized. So basically, we didn't do a lot of advanced planning. So it was always kind of like, what what are we, you know, what's this week's chapter going to be? So reading it, I was really expecting it to be really jangly and all over the place. And so the first thing that struck me was that it actually kind of flowed as a narrative, which I was happily surprised about. Secondly... It had been written so long before that, except for a few little bits here and there, which I could recognize, it was hard to tell who had written what, which was actually kind of great. It was almost Mm -hmm. like reading my own work as if it were someone else's work, which is not an experience I've ever had. So I felt like I was able to read it a little bit objectively. And also, again, because it had been a side project, I think, for both of us, neither of us were... We didn't have a necessity to be that invested. We became invested as we were reading it. But the initial read was really just a kind of spelunking trip, right? You know, is there anything here worth our excavating? And so that was actually kind of a freeing experience.
0: This is probably a good point to ask you, what's the book about? i read it so i know what
3: it's about but tell our listeners okay so it's a satire and you didn't really read it that's uh, fine no interviewers never read it didn't you get coverage you got coverage right somebody read it for you and gave you a one sheet <laughs> yeah, i had yeah. someone i had Tom read it tom Mary, read it and you, a you know this is this us. is probably a good place to tell you know i happen
0: to have blurb the book and i had <laughs> that doesn't someone mean you read it i had someone write the blurb <laughs>
3: excellent they really captured your style not, not quite only, well not only didn't i read it you can not <laughs> it. Perfect. This is the new model. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's AI. So, so tell you, you, our, you
0: listeners, to India, tell our listeners and your interviewer what it's about.
3: Okay. So it's a satire. And so what we wanted to do was satirize two things. We wanted to satirize on the first hand, a kind of disaster blockbuster. Paul was working in Hollywood. I wasn't. So we wanted to have a, a Hollywood satire. So the first basic story is a seismologist who is the fictional grandson of Charles Richter, the creator of the Richter scale, predicts an enormous earthquake for Los Angeles and hilarity ensues. And in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, his next door neighbor, who is a ne'er-do-well screenwriter, sponging off his girlfriend, smoking weed all day, only screenplay he's ever successfully completed is a blockbuster Movie about an earthquake, catastrophic earthquake hitting Los Angeles. So, all of a sudden, his movie gets picked up for seven figures. It gets pushed into high budget production. And then we have these two overlapping stories, one being sort of the disaster satire and the other being the Hollywood satire.
2: So, you had to do a lot of research about seismology, obviously, for this.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah. No, actually, one of our <laughs> rules was we don't research. It's fiction, it's made and up. We didn't, so we did no research. I was interested in earthquakes, obviously. I went from—after we finished this, I went into the long cycle that led to me writing Myth of Solid Ground, which was a a very heavily researched nonfiction book about earthquakes. But for this, we decided flat out. It was just we weren't going to do any research. We were just going to make it up as we went along. We didn't even do a lot of the Hollywood stuff. We, I you mean, know, that was more experiential, but we certainly didn't do any research.
2: Yeah. So either. you said 8.2, 9.1. 9.1 sounds good. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. I think it was 8.9. 8.9. And, you know, <laughs> later we realized, later when I did the research, I realized that the San Andreas, you know, we'll find out, but, you know, theoretically the San Andreas won't support a quake bigger than about a 7.9, but yeah. You know, it's fantasy.
0: You know, to a non-science person I'm describing myself, the seismological stuff in the book sounds fairly legitimate, actually. I didn't bump against any of it.
3: Well, first, first thing was we didn't want it to be too outlandish. We wanted it to be believable. We also wanted to keep it vague enough that it would be believable because we got too specific. The seams would show. And then actually, in fact, we did stumble on this whole notion of earthquakes interacting with each other is, in fact, scientifically valid. So we didn't know that at the time. It just sort of made sense. But then later when I actually began to do research on it, I was very pleasantly surprised that we had sort of intuitively stumbled on something that was sort of true.
2: I've always wondered about serial writing because I am i could not do it. There's no way I could do it. I mean, I don't know what I'm writing about until after it's published. I, it I sometimes don't know what ever. I'm writing
3: about even after it's published. Yeah, yeah, and
2: I can't figure it out. So, I mean, I need to go back and rewrite the beginning. Right. But in serial writing, of course, you can't do that. You're just stuck right.
3: with it. To be honest, it was a sort of a thrilling roller coaster ride. I don't know that I would do it again. I'm also not a collaborator. I mean, I'm a solo artist by nature, although I think that the collaboration the serial writing for me would not have worked without the collaboration because it took some of the pressure off Uh and i also think that i am a much more interior writer than paul is so He's a screenwriter. He's really good at plotting. The reason I'm an essayist, because plots don't it come to me. It gets to go wherever you want, yeah. Um, so in that sense, again, and this was just sort of serendipitous, our, our, our strengths were complementary, I think. So he really kind of helped map out the, or in many ways sort of took the lead in mapping out the narrative shape of it, and I was able to come in and do the detail work and the character work.
0: I want to ask you an inside baseball writing question. In the book, because it was written in the 90s, there are topical references. You refer to the O.J. trial. You refer to the death of Jerry Garcia.
3: I was just listening to the dead on the way over here to get in the the headspace for this interview.
0: So what I want to know is, what's your theory of topicality in fiction?
3: It's complicated. I don't think fiction has to be topical. or I think that all literature is ultimately—you know, the best literature is ultimately fundamentally topical because it deals with our humanity, which is something that is never not topical— But I subscribe to the David Foster Wallace model. You know that story about the Great Grey Eminence where he, when he was in graduate school, his writing professor said to him, you know, don't put in references to Tom Cruise or Coca-Cola because they'll date your fiction. And Wallace, being a 24-year-old genius smartass, said, you know, you have telephones and electricity in your stories. Doesn't that date your fiction? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's right. I mean, we have to write out of the world that we live in. The universality comes out of specificity. In the case of the serial, I think it's pronounced because since the serial is actually being published in real time, I mean, everything's written in real time, but it's coming out in real time. Often we would write these installments and they'd be in print two days later, Mm -hmm. sometimes the next day, depending on how badly we were blowing deadline. That topicality is a fundamental part of the serial. And I think that's what sets a successful serial apart. I'm not saying this is one, but I think if you think about Maupin, for example, you know, Maupin literally came out to his parents in 1976 by having one of his characters write a letter to his parents coming out. That was the way that Maupin's Mm. parents found out that he was gay. That's a highly specialized example, but there's something really powerful about that immediacy, I think.
2: And so how much rewriting did you do to put this together?
3: Virtually none. My goal, being a lazy person in general, was no rewriting, no edits. You know, it's a historical document. It uh-huh. represents its time. Paul convinced me that there were certain inconsistencies like character name spellings uh, uh-huh. or way people, ways that people were referred to in some installments referred to by their first name, some by their last name, that we should mm-hmm. make consistent. And then he also convinced me that there was one little sort of moment that had never really come to fruition. So we added one half-page scene. Uh-huh. So two days.
0: Okay. The book is Ear to the Ground. David Ulan, thanks for coming on the show.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to our czar of scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to our intern, Maria Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks to associate producer Jim Lane. And thanks to Emerson College for letting us use their beautiful studios. Find us on the web at www.lareviewbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week.